In 2018, director Peter Farrelly and star Mahershala Ali bring us a portrait of a brilliant musician who faces the challenges of racism in the Deep South. In 2019, Heaven Hill gives us a six-year whiskey that tries to transcend its price range. The film is Green Book. The whiskey is Heaven Hill Green Label. And today we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And today we're looking at the 2018 film Green Book. So the funny thing is, you just said that we review a classic film. Yeah. Every week. Yeah. And this week we are reviewing a modern film. A really, really recent film. So recent that it literally just won. <laughs> it just came out. Yeah. Best and picture. it's hard to call it a classic because there's been tons of pushback on it. Right. So, Brad, we've been working from this list that we put together of, you know, 150 movies or whatever that we had randomized into an order. I like that you say we as if I had any say in the movie. <laughs> you signed off on it. I didn't sign off on right? it. <laughs> but this month, we're doing a couple new things. And full disclosure from the podcast, we've decided to take a little bit of a break from the list uh, just to talk about some more recent movies. You know, last week we talked about Iron Man because Endgame is coming out. Right. And we thought that it was high time that we talk about a really, really recent movie. Green Book is one that we thought would be interesting to review because of the pushback, uh, because of what we thought of the movie, and just to see what our listeners thought of the film as a whole. Um, it may not be a classic in the sense that it was super critically, super well-reviewed by critics, or that it made a ton of money, but it's worth noting because it just won the Oscar for right. Best Picture. So, Brad... Obviously, you hadn't seen Green Book before this lesson because it just came out. Did you Did know? Did you see it in theaters? I saw it in theaters. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Did you know anything about it going into it? I had seen the previews. Okay. Um, which is saying something because not having TV, you know, cut the cord, all that stuff. Sure. I actually really don't see previews very often. But I remember seeing the preview for this movie and thinking to myself, first, that's Figo Mortensen. Right. <laughs> That was literally my first thought. I, think I was he like, gained like thirty pounds easily. Of just he, he had that like just typical beard. Yeah, he lo- he looked great. Oh yeah, Dad and, like, bod is in right now, and his wife is so much more attractive than him. <laughs> but she's still she's still she does is, like attracted to him. Yeah, and, like portrays that extremely well. She, he gives hope to the rest of us. He really does, physique wise. Maybe you, Bob. Maybe. So, so my first thought was like, oh my gosh, that's Vigo. That's Aragorn. Yeah. Like hanging out with like he's he's just this fat Italian dude. So that was my first thought. But yeah, going into it, I kind of had an understanding that it was about racism and a brilliant African-American musician who is facing racism in the South. Yeah. So I I had that sense of what the movie was about, which. Sure. Is what it's about. Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the trailer, I remember seeing the trailer months in advance. And it was, you could tell it was being hyped up for, I think it came out in like October or November. Right. It, it was going to be an Oscar-y movie. And I remember the trailer looking so freaking cheesy that I was like, this is going to suck. And it came out and I enjoyed it a lot more than the trailer would indicate. And so I think part of people's criticism of the movie is that it was as cheesy as the trailer made it out to be. Okay. And I found it to be, you know, if not a perfect movie, at least better than that trailer made it out to be. So, yeah, fascinating movie. I think that the lead up to the movie 
definitely lent it a sense of like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. I, I feel like this movie could be an outdated take on racism. Sure. And the biggest critique of the movie since it has come out is that it is an outdated take on racism. Yeah, for sure. So I, I'm sure that a ton of our listeners have not yet seen this movie. It came out. It did not make a bunch of money, um, which was part of the critique against it was, is the way that this story is being told kind of falling on deaf ears in our society now? And they pointed to the box office numbers as a result. So for those who haven't seen it, Brad, would you be willing to explain the plot of this film? Yeah. So and the if you didn't know this, the film was based on a true story, which take that with a grain of salt. Whenever you see at the end or start of a movie where it says based on a true story, don't don't believe it. <laughs> Very loosely based on a true story. <laughs> and so and that I would say that that is probably true about this story as well. But the basic of the story is that there is a Italian man, uh, what's his name? Tony Lip. Yeah, his last name is really Vallelonga, but he goes by Tony Lip. Right, so Tony Lip Vallelonga is an Italian guy in New York who works as a bouncer in a club. And the club gets shut down for a few weeks for various reasons. And so he takes a side gig driving a doctor of music, mm -hmm. who ends up being uh, Dr. Shirley, who's played by Mahershala Ali. He's an African-American man who is a brilliant musician and, and like brilliant doesn't even like capture how phenomenal of a musician he was. And he has signed on to do a tour um, playing music in the South and he needs a driver to drive him around for the few weeks that he'll be doing this. And the, the movie is about the story of their interactions and they how they help each other grow as individuals. So you were talking about how it's based on a true story and to take that with a grain of salt. And I think that that advice, it fits here and it fits in general. But what complicates things for this movie is that the screenwriter is Nick Vallelonga. Right. Tony Vallelonga's son. And so he's trying to tell the true story of what happened when his dad drove Dr. Don Shirley through the Deep South. And he says that it's based on tapes that he had from his dad that he recorded 20, 25 years ago. The thing is... We get a sense in the movie that his dad likes to kind of BS. Right. So you do wonder a little bit how much of this is fabricated, how much is exaggerated. Um, we know now that Dr. Don Shirley's family did not really consent to a lot of this being used in the movie, and they didn't really seek them out for approval either. So from Shirley's side of, of things, we don't really know a lot about how valid the story is. And so as we go into the movie, you kind of have to ask yourself as a viewer, like, does the validity of this story matter or am I just in here for an entertaining movie? And I think part of it with me is I've seen enough based on true story movies that are nothing like the truth that when I go into a movie, whatever it's based on, I'm looking for how does this movie build an internal world or universe? Is it consistent? Does it make sense? Is it coherent? How does it abide by the, the rules that it sets for itself? I'm not so much worried about how is this portraying the real life events, because let's be honest, like every Hollywood movie that's based on a true story sort of Hollywoodizes the movie. Right. Well, and in the end, it, it's the idea of sources. A first level source is somebody who was at an event and saw Don Shirley play or was Tony Vallelonga himself. Mm -hmm. But even them, you know, throughout history, we in like police work with like eyewitness reports it's been established that eyewitness reports are terribly unreliable. Yeah. And it's extremely difficult for humans 
to remember everything that happens in any given situation, let alone over a, a span of a life to remember specifics about things that happen. For sure. And so when you watch a movie like this that portrays itself as a movie based on real events, you have to remind yourself that it is an interpretation of events that happen. Right. And, and you have to ask yourself the question, are you okay with that? Yeah. And if you're not okay with that, that's fine. Like, if you want your historical portrayals to be 100% accurate to what actually happened, then you might not enjoy a movie like this. But if you're okay with people using a historical event or events or a person's life to represent truths about humanity and represent where we are at as a society or where we were as a society in the 60s, then I think you can learn a lot of lessons from this. Absolutely. And the thing, the critique of this movie is, okay, if you're not going to be telling an accurate story, then you have to ask yourself, what are you making the story into? Why are you using these characters in this way? What's the point you're trying to make? And is it even worth it to tell this story in the context of 2018? And that's something that we're going to get into a little bit later. But for now, I want to take the movie on its own merits. I don't want to talk so much about the larger analysis of it. Let's get into the content of the movie. So the movie was directed by Peter Farrelly of the Farrelly Brothers. Okay. And the Farrelly Brothers are comedy directors. Like they did There's Something About Mary. They did Shallow Hal and uh, Stuck on You. Like they made these really crude comedy yeah. movies. And so Peter Farrelly, he knows how to get a laugh. But my big concern with him as a director is that coming from the type of comedy that's always show, don't tell – he shows us everything and it's not subtle. And I think there are times where fairly as a director kind of overindulges and goes like too far into like making his point. And the problem is when he overshows certain things, it creates almost logical inconsistencies with later parts of the movie. And how so? The, the key example of that would be at the very start of the movie when they are watching baseball in their apartment, they being Tony Lip's family. And two African-American men are fixing their plumbing or something in the house. And his wife offers them glasses of water and they drink from it. They they drink the water and leave. And, and Tony walks over and he looks at the glasses and you can feel the racism mm -hmm. just oozing off of him. And that was a point where in my head I was like, oh, he's just kind of a racist Italian guy. Yeah. You know, and then... To even further show it, he has them pick up the glasses and throw them in the trash can. Yeah. And that for me was was like the key example of of Peter Farrelly overstepping, over showing his hand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because later in the movie, Tony is portrayed as this guy who's kind of like, I know y'all are racist and I've been there too, but he's a cool guy. Like, yeah. And and gosh, it's going to be so hard to not step into like the analysis portion because it's it's presented as, well, Tony was racist, but he's kind of like the good racist. The which, harmless. Right. Which is just a factual error. Right. You know, his racism is fed from the same place as the people in the South that are just that just hate black people. Right. And, and demean them and dehumanize them. And it is really complicated and difficult to understand why they can take Tony's racism and portray it as something that's redeemable and then immediately present him as like. The advocate. Right. He goes from hating black people to like teaching Don Shirley about how to eat fried chicken. Right. Within 40 minutes. Right. Well, and not only that, but getting into fights about getting 
Dr. Shirley the, the proper piano. Yeah. And punching the police officer in the face and, and trying to defend him. It was just too much of a jump. Yeah. And I think that if he hadn't had Tony do that simple act of picking up the glasses and throwing them in the trash can, you cut that out. And it's more believable to think, okay, he might have some some racist cultural things in yeah. his underlying, but he's not overtly racist. Well, yeah, not, not in word or deed as much. It, yeah. I mean, you have shots of him in that opening scene kind of looking askance right. at the black people in right. his kitchen. And that's enough as a viewer to know he's not comfortable. He doesn't like those people. You know he's racist. Yeah. Did you have to have him being so overtly racist to make your point. Exactly. And that's where my problem with Fairly as a director comes in because he has moments like that throughout the film that are like beating you over the head and saying, do you get what I'm trying to say? There's a scene where the car kind of breaks down and uh, uh, Tony Lip is trying to fix the car. He's pouring water into it. And Don Shirley gets out to kind of stretch a little bit. And right across the street is a, I don't know if it's a cotton field. There's you know, black people working the fields. And this right. is in the 1960s. Obviously, this was still happening in the South. And they all kind of stop working and they look across the street at this well-dressed black man. And obviously, you know, the point of the scene is here's a guy who was able to to kind of, quote unquote, make it. He's living a completely different life. And if Don Shirley was in the South, he would be numbered among them working in the fields. And there's something about it that is powerful. But then it goes on for so long of them staring at each other and the cheesy kind of music that rises up, like, there are points in this movie where I feel like it, with a better editor or a better direction, it could have made its points way more strongly than it does. Right. I even think about that scene, and I think it could have been powerful if it was simply shown as they were driving by. Sure. That you you have a nice shot from the side of the window where Don Shirley, like, wakes up from a nap and he kind of looks out and he sees the fields. Mm-hmm full of people of the same ethnicity as him who right. are still working in essence slave labor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that could have been a more powerful shot. Right. So let's, let's take a second here. Let's talk about the acting in the movie because, you know, we're getting into talking about Don Shirley and Mahershala Ali's performance. So really there's two main characters in the movie. You got Viggo Mortensen, you've got Mahershala Ali. I want to talk about both of them. Who do you want to start with? Let's start with Vigo. Let's start. Oh boy, let's start with Vigo. <laughs> now I'll say this: Vigo has caught a lot of crap because his performance is so Guido, yeah, and so Travolta, yeah. You know, um, but I have a different take on it. In that, I think that the character is written in such broad strokes that Vigo actually helps ground him a little bit. The script for his character is so bad. Oh, I mean, it's terrible. He's, he's Every Italian stereotype from, you know, what was John Travolta's name on Welcome Back, Cotter? Vinny Barbarino or whatever his name was. Everything from from that to The Sopranos is collapsed into Tony Lip's character. Right. I mean, he's walking around, like, essentially saying, yeah, all the time. <laughs> like the Fonz. Right, exactly. You know, and all he's doing is, like, eating pizza all the time. And yet, somehow, Vigo takes that character and makes him somewhat believable. Not only somewhat believable, but super likable. Yeah. Like, he is somebody that you're just kind of like, yeah, that like that could be my, you know, fat uncle. Yeah. You know, the thing with, with Vigo, too, part of me can't separate the era that this movie is portraying. Because if you go back to the late 50s, early 60s, you know, even with us, we grew up in Northeast Ohio. Northeast Ohio is heavily Eastern European, Ukrainian, Hungarian, Polish. Ukrainian, and Polish. 50 years ago, 
that was that's all there was in Northeast Ohio. And they went to their or their Hungarian clubs and they did polkas. And everyone was like living into the stereotype of being Polish or whatever it was they were. And in some capacity, I have to imagine that that's kind of what it was like to grow up in an Italian neighborhood in New York. I think it's the Bronx that yes. they're in in 1962. And there, there's something about his family sitting there watching the Yankees. Right. That to me just struck so true and so realistic. And yet still kind of like eye rollingly bad. Hey, why can't, why can't they hit a homer? I don't know. Oh, they did it. Like, and yet you still kind of believe it. It's yeah. weird. They were wrong for the way they treated me and you rewarded them. I was hired to get you from one show to the next. How I do it shouldn't matter to you. I just wish you hadn't paid them off. I did what I had to do. You know, if this got out, it would kill your career. Okay, Tony. I need you to stop it with the phony altruism and concern for my career. What the hell does that mean? You were only thinking about yourself back there because you know if I miss a show, it'll come out of your pocketbook. Of course I don't want you to miss a show, you ungrateful bastard. You think I'm doing this for my health? Tonight I saved your ass. So show a little appreciation, maybe. Besides, I told you never to go nowhere without me. I assumed you'd want this to be the exception. And that and that's the struggle for me is do we want movies, historical movies, to be portraying reality of the 60s or the reality we want to think exactly. the 60s were? And and that's kind of where I see problems with the script a little bit. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but it just reminded me. So about halfway through the movie, uh, we find out that not only is Don Shirley being persecuted for being black in the South, but that he has secretly been harboring the fact that he's he's gay. And he he kind of has an encounter with somebody in the shower at like a YMCA. And of course, in the South, you know, the police arrest him. He's chained to the shower. He's naked. Tony Lip comes in, bribes off the cops. And there's they barely talk about it again. And in some capacity, I feel like it would be harder for Tony Lip, an Italian racist in 1962, to be cool with... Don Shirley being gay than it was with him being black. And they play it off as as Tony Lip saying like, oh, I've worked in New York clubs my whole life. I've seen stuff. Everyone, you know, has their secrets. And I'm like, I really think that your view of tolerance is being tailored to 2019 instead of 1960. Like, you can't tell me that he made all those racist comments and he doesn't make one comment. A good Catholic in 1962 about this guy's sexual orientation I struggled so hard with that part because when that happened, I was just like, uh, Tony's going to quit and drive home right now. Well, and like, there's no way he's OK with it. And this. it comes as such a twist because they don't really let on. And I have to say, like direction and writing wise, it it caught me off guard. Yeah. But then it's just completely dropped. They and never really they never pick talk up with about it, again. it again. They never point towards it in any way. They just kind of dropped it there and left it. And this might be something random to bring up. But it reminds me of, a, of probably one of the best movies I've ever watched in my life called The Room. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move on, Brad. If you don't haven't even, seen The Room, finish your point. it's nope. a terrible movie. It's getting cut out, Brad. No. <laughs> the cancer in the movie. Oh, yeah. That's literally what that was to me. By the way, I have breast cancer. No, I don't agree. Like, I think that 
Him. By the way, I'm a homosexual. Hey, I'm okay with it. I see crazy stuff in the clubs. Never talk about it again. I think that him being gay is central to understanding his character. What I don't like is that they don't show how Tony Lip deals with it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I felt like I understood Mahershala's character way more because not only did he have to put on a face in front of white people who hated him, but it really gives you insight into he he can't express any of his identity because so much of it is tied up in I'm black and I'm a homosexual and I can't express those things. And so you understood why he was drinking, why he was silent, why he was lonely, why he shut people out. But they wrote it off with Tony Lips so easily that it really bothered me that they didn't show both of those characters coming to terms with that revelation. Yeah, that when that scene happened, I legitimately just had this thought of like, what is Tony going to do with that? Yeah. Because from what I know of the 60s, it was already hard enough to be black in that time. Yeah. But being gay was a whole nother level that even in the black community, you would be shunned. Yeah, for sure. That Like that was still such a stigma that I that pulled me out of the reality that the movie had created. And I was like, that's not real. Right. So we've gotten off track a little bit, but we've been trying to talk about the performances. I liked Vigo's performance. I didn't love it just because of who the character is. Right. But also I wondered the whole time, like, why Vigo Mortensen? Yeah. Because, I mean, just look at his name. He is the most Scandinavian of men. Vigo Mortensen. Like that He's is... actually uh, half Brazilian, I believe. Is he really? He, at the very least, half South American. His mother was South American, I believe Brazilian, okay. and his father was Scandinavian. Yeah, but he doesn't look Italian no. at all. Whatsoever. And also, I found out that at the time in real life, when Don Shirley and Tony Lip took this trip to the South, Tony Lip was like early 30s, like 34, 32, something like that. Right. Vigo Mortensen is 60 years old. Right. And they made him look like he was about 48 to 52 in the movie. Yeah. Like he was clearly middle-aged. Yeah. I mean, there's just only so much you can right. you know, young down someone that's 60 years old. Right. But it just, the casting doesn't make sense to me. And I'm not saying that Vigo's bad as a result, but there wasn't any other Italian-American actor in his 40s that you could have cast for this movie. I can't. Yeah. that Yeah. That's something that I would have never thought about. Partially because I thought Vigo did such a good job. He was good. I just still think that his character didn't really have a ton to work with. Yeah. On the other hand, Mahershala Ali, in my opinion, he and he won the Oscar this year for Best Supporting Actor. Right. Deserved every bit of it. Which is interesting that he was... What You can explain this to me. Why did they term him as a supporting actor? Part of that is because when a studio submits movies to awards, they have to designate each role. And so sometimes you get a, a like you go back to like 91, the movie, The Silence of the Lambs. Right. Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter is on screen for 20 minutes. Huh. He won Best Actor. Really? He's a supporting actor. Yeah. But they knew they knew the field he'd be competing against and they knew how they could spin it into a, an actor like performance. So they submitted him as Best Actor. Mahershala, in my opinion, is a supporting actor because the, the story is told from Tony Lip's perspective. Right. We don't really see... Mahershala for the first like half hour of the movie, almost 20 minutes, maybe it's always told from Tony Lip's perspective. We see Tony Lip's family and Mahershala is playing a supporting role in that, but it is a huge role. I think part of it is they just didn't want them to be competing against each other for an Oscar. Yeah, that would make sense. So that's interesting though. I, I genuinely didn't know that about the Oscars. What'd you think of Mahershala's performance? I thought that he had a quiet confidence throughout the movie Yeah, that when it cracked, 
and you saw inside who he really was and his struggles, mm. it made those moments feel so deep and genuine and real. Yeah. That I, I loved his performance. I did too. And it's the really subtle things that you don't notice as much the first time around. But whenever he finishes playing a song to these white audiences that hate him, Mahershala is so good at showing how a character puts on a face. Right. You see a second of him finishing his song and breathing and then putting on this fake smile and, you know, being a good performer and yeah. bowing to the crowd. Yeah. And it in that smile, he shows you how sad this guy really is and how much he has to put on a face in front of an audience that he knows wants him to work in the field. Right. And I love when he actually does truly smile is when he's at the African-American bar playing not only his classical music, right. but also the music that he proclaims to not know as well. Exactly. And But that truly brings him joy to be a part of that community. So there's one scene in the movie, and I really feel like the movie thrives in the smaller scenes instead of the scenes that are supposed to be like the Oscar clips. You know, like when you watch the Oscars yeah. and they're like, Viggo Mortensen nominated for Best Actor, and they show the big showy clip of some guy like taking right. a stand. This movie does so much better in the smaller scenes. Yeah. There's a scene two-thirds of the way through the movie where uh, Vigo and Mahershala have to go to a motel that's on that's in the Green Book. The Green Book is uh, – it was written for African-Americans so that when they traveled in the South, they could find places that were friendly and welcoming to them and they wouldn't be harmed. They're staying at this motel. And in that scene, you get uh, him asking Dr. Shirley, do you have any family? And he's like, well, I have a brother – uh, but we don't keep in touch. And you kind of find out, you get the sense of why he's so lonely, why he pushes people away, why he's so isolated. And he says, Tony Lip says, you know, sometimes everybody has to make the first move. And they say goodnight and they roll over to go to bed. And right in that moment is the funniest moment in the whole movie for me. They call back to way earlier in the movie when they were going to go visit Pittsburgh. Right. And Tony Lip, you know, obscenity warning or whatever. Tony Lip says, I got a buddy who calls it Titsburg because all the women have big tits, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it comes all the way back around. And we've had this, this really touching moment. And he says, Dr. Shirley, you know, I didn't I didn't notice anything about their tits. <laughs> Pittsburgh was very underwhelming. It was underwhelming. And it, it it's so disarming. Yeah. I was in a packed house when I watched this in the theater. It got the biggest laugh in the whole movie. Yeah. And for me, the good and the bad of that movie are all in that one scene. Yeah. You know, it's a little cheesy. It's a little tacky. But there's something about the charm. This is like a crowd-pleasing movie. And that's that's the surprising thing to me about the fact that it did not do extremely well at the box. Is that on a very basic, simple level, this was a very entertaining movie. Yeah. It was fun. It was interesting. The characters, they were who they were. Mm -hmm. And you didn't you didn't have to worry about a massive arc you had to follow. You were able to watch Tony change slightly and slowly throughout the film. And it wasn't challenging for you. And and there's a lot of issues we can talk about that where you're making a movie about racism and it's not very challenging. Right. But in the end, it was an entertaining, fun, interesting movie. So I think this might be a good place for us to break. Yeah. Because we've got a ton of analysis to do on this movie. Talking about the pushback, the cultural moment that this movie was released. But I think in order for us to have that conversation, we should probably have some bourbon first. Let's have a glass. All right. So today we are checking out 
Heaven Hill Green Label, which is a six-year bourbon. We figured, why not do Green Label for Green Book? That's right. Now, Heaven Hill is a very, very popular distillery. They also make uh, such bourbons as uh, Larceny. They make Elijah Craig. They make Evan Williams. So this is their namesake bourbon, and it is very, very cheap. Huh. Inexpensive. Uh, online, this is going for $9 a fifth. Nice. I'm pretty sure that we paid a little bit more than that, maybe like 11 or 12 but I mean, we're, you know. That's cheap. We're talking a few bucks. This, so let's just say for the sake of this argument. This is a good benchmark, if you will. This was a $12 bourbon. How much was benchmark? Do you remember? Benchmark was like 15 I think. Okay. Yeah. So it's a similar place. So this is 90 proof. They also make a six-year bottled in bond, uh, which would be 100 proof. Uh, but this is just their standard green label 90 proof six-year bourbon. Now, the mash bill on this, we know it has to be for bourbon, 51% corn. This is 78 corn, 12 barley, and 10 rye. So it should have a little bit of spice on it. There's no wheat to temper down any of that sweetness. So we should should still be able to get some of that corn. What are you guys picking up on the nose? And actually, let me say this. When I say you guys, we've got producer Eric joining us for this tasting. Eric, how's it going, man? Gentlemen, pleasure to be here. Let's drink some whiskey together. Mm. Sounds like the best idea I've heard all day. <laughs> what are we picking up on the nose here? So for me, it's a it's a little hot up front. Yeah. But there's a lot hiding right behind that. So like so like first sniff in, I get a lot of alcohol, a little yep. bit of little bit of oakiness. But then kind of swirled around my glass, open it up a little bit. Yep. There's a little bit of butterscotch hiding back there. I'm getting really, really sweet, almost like a cotton candy mm-hmm. type. I would say like yeah. to yeah. me it's kind of peanut buttery, but like oh, that, that sweetness. Yeah, for sure. Brad, how about you? Uh, you guys are saying it all. The peanut butter, I actually, after you said it, I was like, man, it I'm, almost I'm has planting that, that seed in that your that mind. Peanut butter, like milkshake <laughs> sweetness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and I will say, I did have to let it mellow for a little bit. For sure. It was just pure alcohol up front. But. That's probably been one of our biggest lessons. You, well, typically, you have to let it sit. And I, I've noticed that you guys taste neat, which is a, is a, it's a good way to do it. If you're going to baseline, baseline that way. But, you know, uh, in previous episodes, you've added, like add a little bit of water or ice. I like to drink my whiskey with an ice ball because again, um, and even distillers I've visited, they say that like, yeah, you should taste it neat, but then add a little bit of water, yeah. drop an ice cube in it, and then let let that open it up a little bit. Why don't we go ahead and uh, score out our nose then before we move on? I would probably give this like a, a, a six, a five or a six on the nose. Um, it did take a little bit to develop, but it is getting more and more complex. So I'm going to say for myself, a six on the nose. I really enjoy the nose. I like the the burn that you can feel up front mm-hmm. with those hidden elements. I would give it a seven. Okay. Eric? I'm going to go with six. Um, you know, perfect 10 is like right out of the bottle. Uh, it's, it's pleasant to me. Yeah. Um, this is, it needs some time and I need to adjust to it. Yeah. Like I can't, you know, it's like yeah. you, you got to set the baseline. So, you know, you go to a rock concert. And, you know, they, the band comes out and it's loud, but then like, you know, five, six songs in, it's normal. You're having a conversation with the person next to you. You go to a poetry reading, someone like moves their cup cup on the table. You're like, whoa, hey, guy, quiet down. <laughs> right. that, that's how it is with, you know, setting the baseline with, with wine or whiskey or anything. Um, so, yes, it's pleasant. It's definitely above a five for me. I say six. All right. Let's take a taste. No, let's just keep talking about how it smells. It's never. No, I'm just kidding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We don't actually drink whiskey here <laughs> on the Film and Whiskey Podcast. So I've heard different people talk about the best way to get your first taste. And some people like to do that long sip and swish and swallow. Some people just say take a, a swig and then if you're going to dissect it, take another one afterwards. I like to get just a little bit and put it right up at the front of my mouth. 
see what it tastes like on the tip of my tongue before I roll it back. And when I do that, this thing has so much sweetness to it. It is yeah. like, man, it's it's syrupy sweet. One is di- that it's interesting that you say that because uh, your tongue has different, very disparate taste zones. Yeah. That taste sweet, that taste salty, that taste sour. And, uh, and that's a good way to do it. Like when I, whenever I try it, you know, try a whiskey or a wine, like I start in the front and then try to let it wash back across my tongue yep. and see where it hits me. Um, so if you start up front, like you're going to get that sweetness first. And I definitely do. Um, the other thing I learned actually doing moonshine tastings in, in Tennessee <laughs> was, um, you, uh, so you take, you take a drink and then you breathe in and you, and you get flavors that way, but then you breathe out. And you get different flavors sometimes. Really? Like we did an apple pie moonshine that was apple on the way in. And then you breathe out and you taste the caramel behind it. That's amazing. I just breathed in while it was still in my mouth. And I thought I was breathing fire for a minute. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what would we give this on the taste? Guys, I really, really like this. It is so sweet that, like you said, with the different taste zones on your tongue, once it hits the back of your tongue, it's like straight rye. Oh, I was to say, what did you, you say the mash bill was on this? Uh, it's 78 corn and it's only 10 rye and 12 barley. I got no rye on the nose, uh-huh. and then that was the first thing that hit me when I when I tasted it. And I like it; it's a good thing. But me. the sweetness masked—not I don't want to say masked it, but but complemented it enough that it wasn't bitter. Oh no, not at all. It I allowed you to ride it out. I'm giving this an eight on the taste. Eight. I really like eight. This. Eight for all of you. Yeah, I like eight. I'm, I'm good sticking at seven. 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 Somebody's got to be different. How good. about the finish? It doesn't linger. I, I mean, it, it dissipates pretty quickly, which some people like, some people don't. For a rye or a bourbon with some rye in it. It's not too bitter. Doesn't burn. I say for me, I get the corn more on the finish. For sure, like it's yep. the sweetness lingers, yep. and I like that. I do too. I'd probably give it like a six on the finish. Going seven on the finish, Brad. Eight on the finish. Oh, all right. And then overall balance. Uh, the only thing that really stuck out for me is the nose. The nose was the least pleasant part of this, mm-hmm. but overall, I'd still give it at least a, at least a six on the balance. I'm going seven on the balance. I was going to yeah. go seven as well. Well, and then the. My behind on that is I've had wines where I pour in the glass and, you know, maybe I decant it, maybe I don't, depends on what it is. And I take, I, I smell the nose and I'm like, this is going to be fantastic. And right. then I taste it and I'm so let down and I'm much more inclined to give a, an opinionated higher score just based on like my overall experience Yeah. when, all right, the nose is okay. I'm still interested. Like you, you haven't sold me yet, but then I taste it. And I'm like this. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this, this is good. So, right? so when I leave the experience feeling better than I started, yeah, you get a higher score than when I start super excited and then just get let down. Sometimes yeah. I wish that we included a price category because Brad and I talk all the time about how price is an important point when you're on a budget. Absolutely. But I would literally, I would pick this blind against at least two or three of the bourbons we've tried so far. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Easily. It is delicious. And it was $9. This is the cheapest bourbon that we've had yet. I mean, I think I paid 12 and that would still make it the cheapest one. So if we add up our scores, I came out to a 26. Brad came out to a 29. Producer Eric came out to a 28. So we're really, we're looking at about a 28 average yeah. out of 40. We're talking like upper quarter almost. We're talking very old Barton levels. Oh, it's way above very old Barton. <laughs> this, is, this is really, really good. I can't recommend this highly enough. If yeah. you've got 10 bucks in your wallet and you can find a bottle. Well, and that's, a, I mean, that's the thing. Like if, if you're a, if you're a bourbon drinker or a scotch drinker, um, it's always good to have the stuff that you pull out when you, you know, your, your good friends come over or like when your guests come over. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if, you know, you just want to have a glass while you're yeah. hanging out. Yep. You don't want to pull out the great stuff maybe all the time. 
and it's it's important to have an everyday like a daily drinker, whether it's wine, yep. whether it's bourbon, whether it's beer, to have that around. And this this fits that. Bill. See, here's the funny thing: if I'm doing a daily drinker, that's my stuff. Like this is what I would drink daily, and I would pretend to like Maker's Forty Six enough to give that to my <laughs> Forty dollars for this. You should drink it all because it's not that good. The more I drink this, the more I get fruit notes to it too. It's just it continues to get more complex. This might be, aside from our preview episode when we did uh, Pepper 1776, this might be the best whiskey I've had yet. It re- I mean, it really is. And, and again, that goes back to the tasting neat and then also the setting your baseline. Yeah. Because to, to me, this was a little bit hot out of the gate. Yeah. But now that I've adjusted to it, same thing. Like, the, and the, even, like even been, you know, having been a minute or two since the last time I tasted it, I still taste it and it's still developing. Yeah. Love it. Final thoughts. Brad, would you recommend? 100%. I would absolutely recommend Absolutely. No question. All right. Well, let's get back into from Green Label to To talking about Green Book. What do you guys say? Thanks for having me, guys. Enjoy. Absolutely. All right. So that was Heaven Hill Green Label, which I continue to sip on. Heavenly. Best $9 we've ever spent. For real, though. That, I am so impressed with Heaven Hill. Yeah, for sure. Like, that... That would be a good $30, $40 bottle of wine. I would, I would pay $35, $40 bucks for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And for that price, you could get four or five bottles of it. Yeah. 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 My math is off. We've drunk enough whiskey today. Yeah, for real. Let's though. get back into Green Book. And this is the part of the podcast that, you know, Brad and I have been talking about this movie off air. We Obviously, we are both white males. And it is really hard to analyze this film as white males without recognizing up front that that's, that's what we are. It's the background we come from. It is. And part of it is, you know, we don't feel qualified to speak on some of these issues of race. We want to be allies. We want to be supportive of black people in movies, advancing African-American stories in movies. And Green Book, I can even admit, has some problems in the stories it's trying to tell. This is the kind of movie that it's been compared to Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah. And I can see why, obviously, the, the plot of the movie but also because this is the style of filmmaking about race that worked really, really well 25 to 30 years ago. And it does kind of seem out of place in 2018. And if you look at the other movies that came out in 2018 about race, you know, you've got Black Panther, Black Klansman, If Beale Street Could Talk, you've got Blind Spotting, you've got The Hate You Give, uh, Sorry to Bother You. These are all movies that have a more, you know, quote unquote, woke understanding of the black experience in America and around the world. Don't ever use the word woke, Bob. Well, I mean, that's the knock (laughs) against this movie is that it's not nuanced enough. It's not even that it's not nuanced enough. It's that it is told from the perspective of like the director's white, the screenwriter's white. It doesn't represent a nuanced enough approach to what it was like to be black in the South. And so, Brad, I mean, you and I have to touch on this a little bit. And I think the best way to go about doing it is to look at the critiques that are being leveled against this movie and kind of talk about whether we think they're fair, whether or not we completely agree with them, whether or not they're fair, and whether or not they actually get at something in the movie. I think the biggest thing for me before we get into that is that this is a movie that I I really struggle with for the fact that I liked it so much. And the problem is that this is a movie, the main character of this movie is Viggo Mortensen, Tony Lip. Right. And so it's a story about a white man 
hopefully leaving racism behind and coming to a point where he has respect for a prominent black figure in his life. Mm -hmm. But the problem, the problem with that, and that in itself isn't a bad thing. I think everybody would agree that somebody who used to be racist, learning how to not be racist is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think anybody would argue against that. Sure. The problem is we've seen that movie before. You people love the fried chicken, the grits, and the colored greens. I love it, too. Negro cooks used to make it all the time when I was in the Army. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. No, no, you're not good. You're bad. I'm saying just because other Negroes enjoy certain types of music, it doesn't mean I have to, nor do we all eat the same kind of food. Oh, Wait a minute. If you said all guineas like pizza and spaghetti and meatballs, I'm not going to get assaulted. You're missing the point for you to make the assumption that every Negro... Hey, you want some or not? No. Hey, come on. Tell me that don't smell good. It, huh? It smells okay. I prefer not to get grease on my blanket. Ooh, I'm going to get grease on my blanket. Come on, have a piece. It ain't going to kill you. Come on, take it, eat it. No. Take it. The, the other problem with that is, and this is what we wanted to get into... Don Shirley is such a secretive person, and he was in real life. So it's not like this movie is just making him that way. But he's so secretive, and you learn so little about him, that it almost comes across like his sole function in the movie is to make Tony Lip a better person. Right. And that's why this movie has been accused of following a stereotype in race relations movies called the magical Negro. Right. And, like, if I can give two examples of the magical Negro in movies. There's a movie that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s, The Legend of Bagger Vance. Will Smith. Which is literally a magical black person. Yes. That comes out of nowhere to help Matt Damon, you know, be a better golfer. Right. And another one that's frequently brought up is The Green Mile. So in these movies, you have white characters that need to go on an emotional journey. And black characters come into their lives. And their real purpose in the movie or in the story is to help a white person become a better person. Right. And a lot of times these these people are very uh, – these black people in the movies are very respectful. They defer to the white people. And sometimes they have a sort of magical ability like Michael Clark Duncan in The Green Mile. Yes. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen The Green Mile. Yeah, it's been out 20 years. They should see it. I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, that's true. And so they level that accusation against Green Book. And I don't think it's entirely fair because Don Shirley is a very flawed person. Like we see him as an – you know, getting – plaster drunk because he's lonely we know that he's been hiding things about his identity and his personality and yet even though i don't agree that he is a magical negro quote unquote you still get a sense that because his character is so secretive it kind of comes across as he's only there to kind of help vigo become a better person and i think that part of that criticism is fair i think part of that criticism isn't only fair i think that Based on the movie's portrayal, that was Don Shirley's hope. Mm. And not in the sense of he wanted to change Viggo Mortensen, but like, why did he agree to do a tour in the South? Well, and that's a big plot point is that to he show did this that, of his own volition. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so I think that I don't know if it's a fair or unfair, you know, accusation leveled against the movie. But Don Shirley, according to the movie, went on that trip to help better the white population in the South to show them that. African-Americans are not what they think that they are. Yeah. So could there be some truth to the, you know, magical Negro story? I think it's, I, I think that the wording is unfair. I don't think that 
that Don Shirley should be described as a magical Negro. I think he should be described as a brilliant man. I agree. I agree with that. And it is very clear that, you know, Vigo's character does need to grow up a little bit. And that doesn't mean that the problem of racism is just a sign of immaturity. But I hate that we draw the comparison that just because both men come out of this trip in a better spot, I don't see that as a condemnation of where Don Shirley was. I think that Don Shirley just feels more open about being who he actually is around Tony Lip. I 100% agree. And my struggle is that uh, I feel like when people level uh, hatred towards movies like this, there's a small part of me that wants to simplify things down to their most basic structure. And I say, at the very end of that movie, what we have are two men that became better because they were in relationship with one another. Sure. And that is a good thing. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I, whenever you can live in relationship with another human being and you are better off because of that relationship, that's good. Yeah. Whether you are black and they're white or Hispanic or Eastern European or whatever, I, I think that that can be a good thing. Well, and like we said, there's parts of this script that just needed clear development. But I also think that there's parts of Nick Vallelonga's script that don't get enough credit for what they actually do. You know, there's a scene right after that horrifying, terrible fried chicken scene where he goes, you know, he's in the South, he performs. And then right after his performance, he's at dinner at this, you know, these people's house that he's performed at. And the, and the master of the house stands up and says, we asked our help what Mr. Shirley might like for dinner. And I just, I remember hearing that line and just being so pissed off on his behalf. Yep. And you just see Don kind of, you know, very graciously smile and nod. He puts that smile back He does. Down. And then even after that, you they bring out fried chicken and they cut over to Tony Lip and he's like, see, I told you so. And it is comic relief, but it also shows how Tony Lip is still so far from understanding what's actually at play. Right. And he does have to have that sort of place of privilege confronted a little bit. Right. And I really like that scene because of what it does there. And... You know, people have come at Nick Vallelonga for what he did or didn't do in talking to Don Shirley's family. Right. So Don Shirley's brother came out and said, a lot of this is factually inaccurate. He had a great relationship with his family. His relationship wasn't strained. And but when I watch the movie, the scene in the motel where he's talking about his brother, my understanding of it may have been completely different than yours. I thought the word brother there was a code. Because we had just established that Don Shirley was gay. Huh. And Vigo Mortensen was saying like, well, maybe you should go find your brother. Sometimes everyone needs to make the first move. And I thought what was being said was, said was a coded understanding that like he maybe he has a love interest huh. that he can't be with because of the times. I didn't pick up on that. I, and I guess that I'm the only one that did because I haven't seen anyone else have that that uh, interpretation of right. it. But I do think that we've sold the character short a little bit. And because he is reserved and he feels like he has to be quiet, it's not just because he's a black person in the South. It's because he has this added layer of his sexuality. And I really thought that the way Mahershala played it was perfect in response to all that. It doesn't make him a weaker character. It doesn't make him, you know, deferring to all these white people. It's, it's really sad the weight that he's carrying. Yeah. And I think that we've sold the script in the movie short a little bit and not getting giving credence to that other layer of this character. Yeah, I think that Don Shirley gives a layer of dignity and respect and honor to somebody who faces racism on a daily basis. Absolutely. And I think that he he does offer a 
beautiful portrayal of grace and kindness in the face of uh, what a lot of people would say, and I would say is is pure evil. Sure. And so I I thought I loved Mahershala Ali's performance. I did too. And and this is where we've been kind of struggling with this movie because I recognize all of the critiques against it. And I also wonder, alongside some of those critics, did we really need this movie? Right. Because we've seen it before. Yeah. And yet, it is so well executed. They know exactly what they're doing. The acting Pe- is great. Peter Fairley might not be the world's best director, but he's... <laughs> He knows how to manipulate us well enough that, like, by the end of the movie, emotionally, right. I was invested. Right. I enjoyed this movie. Yeah. That's not to say that I condone everything in it. That's not to say that I don't find parts of it problematic. But, like, at the end of the day, our question on this podcast is to answer, was it a good movie or was it a bad movie? Right. I thought it was a good movie, Brad. I 100% agree. Can I can I talk for one second about... So we talked a lot about how the the movie doesn't do racism super well. Yeah. Can I talk about one part that I thought it did extremely well that I've never seen in a movie before? When the police officer basically tells Tony Lip that he thinks of him as a Italian just as poorly as he thinks of Don Shirley as a as a black man. Yeah. And and I really enjoyed that in this movie that you got a little hint of that. For sure. I don't I don't know that I would call that necessarily racism as much as just like you know, them confronting the, the the majority culture of the South confront, you know, they don't have Italians and they've made it very clear. Like, what's your last name? Vala? What? Right. You know, but it isn't until Tony Lip starts to see how he's treated and how he reacts so violently that he starts to respect what Mahershala's character has put up with for so long. And that's a good and a bad thing. Um, in the way that it's portrayed in the movie. But I do think you're right in that the script is more nuanced than we give it credit for. Yeah. So overall, Brad, we liked this movie. Yes. We understand the issues it has in 2019. I still think it has something to say. And especially, you know, the crowds that went to see this movie, by and large, were older white audiences. For sure. The way we talk about race with older white audiences is just different than how millennials are talking about it now. And I think that this movie does still have a function and a purpose in 2018, even if we don't agree with it. Yeah. And on top of that, it's just a crowd-pleasing movie. Yeah. If you had to give it a score, what would you give it? Seven and a half. I think I'm right there with you. I, I would. Parts of it are like an eight. Right. Where I'm like, wow, this is really good. And parts of it are like, you should have cut that that one little bit. Right. But I think a seven and a half is about where I would be with it. It's a well-made movie, not without its issues. Right. And in the end, it gets you talking about a subject that is talked about on the internet a lot. Yeah. But it's not talked about in interpersonal relationships face to face. Sure. And I think seeing this movie with friends or family or I think it's a great way to introduce this topic in, into a conversation to be able to move forward on issues like this. Absolutely. So those are our thoughts on Green Book, but we want to know what your thoughts are. We'd like for you to find us on Instagram at Film Whiskey, on Twitter at Film Whiskey, on Facebook, Film and Whiskey Podcast. Or you could call in. Let us know what you think about Green Book. We'd love to hear feedback on movies like this because, look, Brad and I are not experts. We're not the only people in the world who have opinions on this movie. If you would like to have your voice heard, call our call-in number. That number is 216-800-5923. Once again, 216-800-5923. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I am Bob Book. I am Brad G. We'll see you next week. 